to Acts chapter 16. I invite you to turn your attention with me. Acts 16, we'll pick up there at verse 6. And though I had originally intended to read through the end of the chapter, as you see in your bulletins, we'll uh, read, as it turns out, only through verse 15. Paul's original plan had been to go back to visit the churches that he and Barnabas had planted to strengthen the saints there. God had bigger plans. Isn't that just the way? Man proposes and God disposes. We make our plans and that's good and right. It's wise to make plans and to set a course when working in the things of God. But as any missionary will tell you, the former pastor of this congregation has been uh, written, has been uh, serving as a missionary of sorts, as well as being a pastor of a church in southern Illinois, and wrote an entire article about this recently. Flexibility is key when following the Lord. He has a way of turning our plans around, even upside down, to serve his will. Paul and his companions, as we'll see in the text this morning, got that in spades. God's sovereign providential purposes always prevail over our plans. And always perfectly so, for the very simple reason that they are his. And so with this gospel in particular, and the workings of his gospel, as we'll see here in Acts 16 after we pray. Father in heaven, we ask for you to transport us back uh, to this day and to these events that took place, that we may see, as it were, through the eyes of the apostles even, and of those who were Paul's companions, how you were so mightily at work, that we may also, Father, have eyes to see that you are still mightily at work and still doing these very same things that you did then in the lives of people whom you are bringing to yourself, even now, this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, when we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
They typically would have gone to a synagogue, but apparently there weren't even enough uh, Jewish men there. There was a requirement of minimum of 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. Apparently there weren't even that many uh, there in that city. So they came to these women at the uh, place they were praying. One who heard us, verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, what we've just read is a supremely important passage in Scripture. It's another turning point for the gospel. Remember that so far in Acts, we've seen the gospel go to Judea and to Samaria, even to Africa and the continent of Asia. Well, now, with Paul's crossing of the Aegean Sea to Macedonia in this morning's text, we've seen the gospel go to Europe where the gospel would entrench itself and find a certain and central place in the world for centuries and centuries thereafter. In fact, for the vast majority of us here in this room, that is a fantastically important point as well, that the gospel came to Europe. It's also a very curious passage, though, as well. Think about this. Paul and Silas, and judging from the repeated use of the pronoun we, Luke, the author as well, were making their way to the west-northwest from Phrygia Phrygia and Galatia uh, when they hit a wall. The Spirit stops them from going into that region called Asia. Well, all right, then. You can hear them saying to themselves, we'll make a right turn and Head into Bithynia and preach the gospel there. That makes perfect sense. But once again, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that is, stops them in their tracks. So now, in a move that probably didn't make much sense to them at the time, instead of a right turn into Bithynia, a left to the coast and to Troas. And there into a ship. Why into a ship? Unless one's life or livelihood depended on it, he wouldn't get into a ship. Well, because of a vision from God. A man of Macedonia standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. What else could they do? God had called and they must go. Once in Macedonia, they come to the city of Philippi and there encounter three very different people to whom the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus that is, comes, and who will find themselves transformed by it. A businesswoman by the name of Lydia, whom we read about today, and two others whom we'll read about next week, Lord willing, a demon-possessed slave girl and a jailer. Here we learn for ourselves some important points about the workings of the gospel by the grace of God, two of which we'll take up this morning. For one thing, we learn the 
particularity of the gospel in the providence of God. That is to say, we learn how God's grace brings and applies the gospel to some, but not to others. Paul and his companions were forbidden forbidden by Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, from going to two places, but led by the same Spirit to go to a third. What about the other two? Why Macedonia, but neither Asia nor Bithynia? The same question still asked by people today, by thoughtful Christians especially. Why has the gospel come to us while others remain in the darkness? You've heard this described perhaps on a global scale as the problem of the unreached heathen. But in the Bible, there's no problem. It is what it is. And Scripture itself does not seem overly concerned to explain to us why the gospel goes to some, but not to others. Not that we shouldn't continue to proclaim the gospel far and wide and around the world, of course. We should. We must. But even as we obey God's commandment, to take the gospel to the whole earth, he continues to open some doors and close others. So it's been even with some of our own missionaries, our own church's missionaries, I mean, over the years who thought their ministry was moving in one direction only to find themselves directed by God to another altogether. So it's been throughout the history of missions. Livingston tried to go to China God sent him to Africa instead. Before him, William Carey planned to go to Polynesia in the South Seas, but God guided him to India. Judson went to India first, but was driven on to Burma. And not that those places were not eventually reached with the gospel or left bereft of it completely. But if you make it personal, you can think now of Thousands of people who have died in different places unsaved because they were unreached with the gospel. And still today there remain thousands and thousands and thousands of people who will live and will die and never hear the gospel. That makes something of a problem for us, doesn't it? If we're sensitive at all to the terrible and eternal outcome of a life that remains unreached by the gospel, it does. People who know that they have eternal life desire like nothing else that others receive that same gift so as to escape the wrath to come. People like that will be troubled by the fact that some No, many, many people never even have the opportunity to receive it, never hear the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, if I may put it that way, the Bible is not concerned to supply any justification at all for God's 
providence, leaving as it does multitudes of human beings ignorant of the gospel. The Bible's philosophy on this point is fairly simple. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God chooses some, some of those who are worthy of death, just as worthy as all the rest. And for those and those only, he affects salvation, both through the work of his Son on the cross and by his Holy Spirit in the heart. And merely hearing the gospel really isn't the issue anyway, is it? And even among those who hear the gospel, there are only some who really hear the gospel and receive it. The ones God intends to save and so supplies to them the spiritual ears to hear it as well. Are we troubled by that thought? Sometimes we are. But God's ways, we know, don't we, and have come to understand through these years, God's ways are not our ways. And what's more, we sinners are very poor judges, aren't we, concerning what God should do with sinners. On Tuesday afternoon, I gathered with the the fellows again, addicts to the man, either to drugs or to alcohol, most of them at my weekly Bible study because the civil courts have required it as part of their last option versus going to prison, others more voluntarily. But one of them was missing. Where's Lucas? I asked. Gone, was the reply. Gone where? Just gone. Disappeared. We all understood immediately what that meant. Lucas is on the lamb. He's running from the law and now, no doubt, has a warrant newly issued for his arrest. What made that news so disappointing to us is that over the recent weeks, Lucas has seemed to be so interested in the things of God. He was even reading his Bible, interacting with the Scriptures. So, so there we sat, all of us around the table, our heads hanging. Well, I closed the study that I had planned to deliver on Tuesday and had the men turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Not wanting to miss an opportunity, a learning opportunity, we read Jesus' parable about the four kinds of soil on which the gospel lands, the hardened path in which it is not received at all, the stony ground on which it springs up but withers, the thorns and thistles that choke it to death, and the good ground where it produces a crop. Right in the middle of that passage between the parable and Jesus' explanation of the parable is a passage that I'm embarrassed to tell you today I was a little embarrassed to read on Tuesday. The disciples asked Jesus why he teaches in parables, and this is Jesus' reply. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but those for those outside, everything is in parables so that... 
they may indeed see, but not perceive. That they may hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and repent. Secretly, I hoped (laughs) that no one had heard that when I read it. Did I mention how ashamed I am of how embarrassed I was about this a few days ago? Of course, one of the fellows in the study zoomed immediately right on that. It seems, he says, like there are some people God keeps from hearing even when it's told to them. He said it with a sort of combination of surprise and a little bit of question in his voice, but with the rock-solid conviction that he just heard his Savior say it. So it's got to be true. What could I do but agree? And actually, in God's providence, we went down a very fruitful path of discussion together on other scriptures that teach the same. Of course, those of you who are familiar with your Bibles can imagine that we ended up where? In Romans 9, right? And even there, I sort of tried to soften the blow of this whole thing a little bit. I read to the men, verse 15, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion upon whom I have compassion. And wouldn't you know, my ambitious disciple jumped right down to verse 18 and pointed out the fact that it also says that God hardens whomever he wills. It was, he was tenacious. <laughs> but what can I say? Talk about God directing our steps where we had not, or I certainly had not intended to go. What could I do? What could any of us do? This is the word of God. We're compelled by the scripture to agree that there are some whom God has no intention to save and even keeps from being saved. This fact lies face up on the pages of the Bible, whether we like it or not, whether we're uncomfortable with it or even embarrassed by it. God is God. And he does as he pleases. God is God, and we are not. And hardly do we understand that better than when we come up against such matters as this, for which we are so woefully incompetent to grasp or understand. Only when we've come really to grips with both the enormity of our sin. And the holiness of God. Only when we're ready to submit ourselves completely from our hearts to the holy freedom of God to choose and save whom he will and only whom he will can we begin to take in even baby bites of the fringes of this truth. Most of the time when we come up against the sovereign ways of God, particularly with regard to the reprobate, that is, those God leaves in the darkness of unbelief, I say most of the time we'll do best simply to put our hands over our mouths. God knows best. God does best. 
and God does all his holy will. Second, we learn about the power of the gospel, though, of God's grace that is working through the gospel. Why did Lydia believe? Why did Lydia believe? Because she was so bright, so smart. She was, after all, a woman of business. Maybe she knew a good deal when she found one, right? And had the smarts to grab hold of it. Maybe it was because Paul was just such an overwhelmingly convincing, persuasive speaker. Or because he packaged the gospel so well and so wonderfully like churches today, it seems, are stumbling over themselves to do. Paul had presented the gospel to others, you remember, who responded with rocks, stones. So it probably wasn't because Paul was overwhelmingly convincing in his presentation. Luke tells us why she believed. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She believed because God gave it to her to believe. He gave her the gift of faith. Now, that's nothing new to us. The Galatians, we've already seen who believed. We read back in chapter 13, verse 48, believed because they were appointed to believe. In Lydia's case, John Stott puts it this way, the late Dr. John Stott, that God opened her inner eyes to see and to believe in the Jesus Paul proclaimed. We note that, Stott goes on, although the message was Paul's, the saving initiative was God's. Paul's preaching was not effective in itself. The Lord worked through it. That's always the way it works in the Bible, isn't it? Faith is something that God supplies. It's his gift. So that, when God grants a person eternal life, a person who believes and exercises faith... He's only crowning his own gifts. And that's why two people who are otherwise completely on par with one another intellectually can hear the exact same message of the gospel and one receive it while the other misses it altogether. Remember the account I told you before of how William Wilberforce, the Christian and champion of opposing and And finally, bringing to end the slave trade in Britain, once told his friend William Pitt, the prime minister, took him, rather, to hear Richard Cecil, one of the finest preachers of the age. Wilberforce wanted his good friend to become a serious, committed follower of Jesus, just as he was. Cecil preached a great gospel sermon, set forth Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners so wonderfully, called upon all of them to believe and be saved. And on their way out of that place, what should Pitt say to his friend Wilberforce? Wilberforce, I have no idea what that man was talking about. 
I've been reading a biography of Wilberforce these days, and I can assure you, based on, on what I've read so far, that the two were of similar wit and mental acumen. They were in so many ways very much alike, but God granted faith to Wilberforce and not to Pitt. Let me use a more modern example. Our own Chuck Thomas recently forwarded to me the wonderful testimony of one of his relatives and attached to family genealogy as well, presented from a spiritual point of view. Won't some people in this room be interested in reading about that? Well, I think they already know it, actually. I have nothing on you, Steve or Wendy. Well, not much. (laughs) It's interesting to see the trends in these two families. But what's striking for this morning is that both Chuck and his brother were raised, right, similarly, unbelieving, home. They both married Carol's. One of those Carol's has an extra E at the end of her name, but that's both he and his brother have three boys and one girl. Both have been exposed to perspicuously clear presentations of the gospel on multiple occasions. Our Carol is actually the human instrument through which Chuck came to know the Lord. Chuck's brother loves music like the Messiah, but has no interest in the Lord, who's featured in every line of that great piece of music, while Chuck loves the Lord and trusts in him completely for eternal life and for everything else. What's the difference between Chuck and Roy? Just this. The Lord has given faith to Chuck and not to Roy. Now, that hasn't stopped us from pleading and continuing to plead that Roy will come to faith, that the Lord will give that gift to Roy as he's given it to Chuck. But the point is, until he does, Roy will remain recalcitrant while Chuck is receptive. What Luke Luke writes of Lydia and We could say of Chuck and say of every one of us here who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord opened the heart. John in his gospel put it this way. He says, to to as many as received him, he gave the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believed on his name, who were born not of human decision. That's an important line for today's evangelicalism. Born not of human decision, nor of a human's will, a husband's will, but were born of God. Jesus puts it this way. He says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They too will hear my voice and will follow me. Six months ago, William Clayton died at the age of 83. You all miss William, don't you? (laughs) You don't even know who William Clayton is. William Clayton, most of you, I doubt, he died at 83. He was the executive and board member 
of a particular brokerage firm, and he oversaw the brokerage's advertising campaign. You folks who have more than a decade or two of life under your belts may remember the advertisements. There were several different advertisements, different settings. In one of them, two executives meet at the luggage claim at the airport. And as they make their way along the busy corridor, people moving hither and thither and yon all around them, one of them says, well, my broker says that this kind of investment really would serve me well in the long run. What what does your broker say? Well, says the second man, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and suddenly the corridor freezes, and everyone who'd been carrying luggage and running to their planes and so on stops and listens. Because the commercial ends, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. It was really a brilliant uh, advertising campaign witnessed by the fact that um, we still repeat it today. Wednesday evening, Sarah, you repeated it. Remember? Maybe not, but you, I was struck as Wednesday evening, we were still repeating it. When so-and-so talks, people listen. Well, when God talks, he also gives the ears to hear to some, and they listen. But he has to do both. He has to do both the talking and provide the hearing, too. And what does that make salvation? It makes salvation a matter of grace from beginning to end, from grace to grace. Now, what must all of this mean to those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ today as your Savior? What what shall we do with all of that? Well, we, we may certainly begin. We must begin. Where else could we begin? But by giving glory where glory is due to the Lord. No one here can who is trusting in the Lord for his or her salvation, can pat himself or herself on the back and say, Well, God, didn't we do a good job? Well, God, aren't you glad that I trusted in you? Congratulations to me. No, we never dream of saying such a thing. No, You give all glory to God without whom you know full well you'd still be in the darkness of your unbelief today. You never agreed with anyone more than you agree with Jonah, the prophet, who says that salvation is of the Lord. We'll do no boasting except in Christ who has saved us by giving us both eternal life and the hand of faith with which to receive that free gift. Which brings me to the second thing we're to do with all of this, maintain a humble spirit within ourselves. We have nothing, my brothers and sisters, nothing at all that has not been given to us. An arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. 
Because a real Christian knows that the only thing that distinguishes me from unbelievers, even from the worst of unbelievers, the worst criminals in the world, the only difference is that Christ came to me. However he came, whether through a friend or through a sermon or through the covenant faithfulness of parents, through a Sunday school teacher, through a friend, whatever instrument, he came and he took hold of my heart by grace. He opened it with the scalpel of his love and he implanted their faith to trust in him, to hear him, to love him, to follow him, to receive him. And finally, because it is God who does this, we have all the more reason, as I've already mentioned to you in passing, we have confidence to pray for the salvation of our friends, of our family, of our loved ones, even of our enemies. Because this is a work that God does. There's no way that you or I will ever convert anyone Stand on your head, hold your breath till you turn blue, do what you please. You will not coerce anyone into the kingdom of God. But you may pray them in. See, God brings people into his kingdom gently and lovingly into his church by blowing his spirit into their hearts. And that's a work that he does, is often pleased to do in answer to your prayer. Amen.